with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, we continue walking through the Gospel of Luke. This morning, we'll look at Mary's Magnificat, part 2. We'll be looking specifically at verses 51 through 56. Now, as we look at this section of Mary's Magnificat, I think you will see, as I have, that God is for the underdog. And it seems natural for all of us, I think, at least most of us, that we want to instinctively root for the underdog most of the time. We see it in sports. You see it right now in sports. The NCAA finals, many people are rooting, many people, not everyone, is rooting for the underdogs. We like to see upsets. It makes for a good movie. You've seen Rudy, perhaps. I don't like football, but I like the movie. Rudy, the one who no one thought could do anything, did something great. Or radio, the little giants. Those are all about football, aren't they? <laughs> we see it in our entertainment. I get emails, YouTube videos. It seems that they often come out of Britain, Great Britain for some reason. Susan Boyle or Jonathan Antony or from Australia, Chuka Parker. These people that perform, people we look at and don't assume will be much of anything. When they open their mouths, wonderful music comes out. And we don't see a lot of books and movies that are written about the team that's good and is still good at the end of the movie and beats the little teams all along the way. It's predictable. It's not all that exciting. My social network streams on the internet are not clogged up with videos of well-trained singers with perfect hair and perfect teeth and perfect wardrobes. It's always those who are the unlikely, those who are the unlovely, those that we assume with one look that everything they're about to do is going to be a disaster. Why is that? Why is it that instinctively in our hearts we want to see those who may have been voted least likely to do anything substantive and memorable in life go big time and shock the world with whatever they do well? And I'll just say I'm very glad that was not a category in my high school yearbook. And as we've looked at the Gospel of Luke and everything that Luke is showing us, it seems that God has made some pretty incredible stories out of the lives of underdogs. Elizabeth, the wife of a common Jewish priest in the hill country. Mary, a young virgin teenager in a small nothing town. And we looked last week at the first part of Mary's Magnificat. Mary worshiping the Lord for all that he had done, marveling in humility that he chose her. To mother the Savior of the world. 
And today, as we look at the second part of Mary's Magnificat, Mary's marveling at God's work in redemption. Nobody's becoming somebody's. Nothing's becoming something's. It's a common theme throughout the Bible. It's common in all the work of God. And Mary marvels, and she includes herself in the mix. It's the underdogs coming out on top. The great, mighty, powerful creator God of the universe looks at those who are meek, those who are lowly, those of humble estate, and he makes them to be great. We'll also look at the haughty and the proud and the oppressively powerful, the lavishly rich, and see that God brings them to dust. So let's read the entirety of Mary's Magnificat once again, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So what we saw last week in verses 46 through 50 were what we called five characteristics of true worship. And now this morning we're going to look at how that worship which is rooted in the objective Word of God, marvels at the magnificent works of God within His creation and among His people. So Mary is moving from a personal proclamation of worship to a prophetic word of God's marvelous works. And of course, as we looked at last week, all of this is informed by the historical work of God found in the Word of God. Mary is now pointing to what God will do through the work of Christ. She's looking forward to, she's seeing what is going to come from this child who is in her womb, the Savior of the world, the awaited Messiah. So we're really seeing what God does in individual lives, what He did in the life of Mary, but really God also does those things on the grander scale. We're moving from the micro of the personal life to the macro of the world. Mary recognized God's work in her individual life and now praises God for His work of redemption throughout the world in fulfilling His great covenant promise that great promise with Abraham. So, a few thoughts on the whole, and then we will look at the specific parts. Notice, as we read through this, that everything Mary is writing is in the past tense. 
has shown, has scattered, has brought down, exalted, has filled, has sent away, has helped, he spoke. All of these things are in the past tense. And it's absolutely true and it's absolutely clear that Mary would have been able to look at the historical work of God in the Old Testament and see these great works of God having already been done. But Mary's interest, remember, in all of this is her marveling at what the coming of Christ means. What is so significant about the child in her womb? She's interested in what the Messiah will be and what he will do. So she is writing in what is called the prophetic past tense. Often we see the prophets and the apostles in the Bible writing about future events that are yet to come in the past tense. It seems odd, but it is really a wonderful thing. Here's what they're doing. They are so certain of the fulfillment of what they are prophesying about, they're speaking of it as if it has already been accomplished. They recognize the undeniable reality of a sovereign God who brings all things about that he has decreed. And if God says it is to be so, it is as good as done. So they speak of it as a past reality. It's already been determined. This is what Mary is doing in this passage There's many examples of the prophetic past tense in the Bible. Two quick examples to help us see this. In Isaiah 14, Isaiah speaks of the Israelites' captivity in Babylon as something that is accomplished. And so you can imagine having a prophet come and stand here and talk about us as a people being in a captivity under uh, a a foreign uh, rule. Uh, We would think perhaps that... He is not quite clear on his history, but he's speaking of what is yet to come as though it has already happened because it is as sure as done. Likewise, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8, we see the Apostle Paul in verse 30, that great golden chain of redemption. Those whom he Blank, he also blank. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, none of us are glorified, right? We're not there yet. It is yet to come. There are many who will be justified who are not yet. But the Apostle Paul writes about this as though it is already done. Why? Because God has already decreed it. It will come to pass. It is as good as done. So this is what the prophetic past tense is, and this is how Mary works through the great works of God in the Magnificat. And Mary specifically is describing the ultimacy of the events tied to the final victory of Jesus the final work of God in Jesus Christ the Messiah as though it's already been accomplished. She's describing the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham and the complete reversal of the order of things. It's the establishment of a new world order. The establishment of Jesus' kingdom. His kingdom that began at His coming 
That would change everything. The weak would be made strong. The poor would be made rich. The humble would be exalted. So as a people of God, He is called to His children to be His possession. And we can delight in that great reality. We can delight that we are the possession of God and He will give us the first fruits of all things. He will give us the highest place of nobility. We can rejoice in what God counts on our behalf as though it is as good as done. God has worked in our favor already. He continues to work in our favor. And we can look forward to that great day when all things are brought to completion and God has done all things for our good. Probably the most well-known place in Scripture where we see this type of culture-transforming, new world order language is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and particularly in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5. Listen to the words of Jesus. They're very familiar to us, but it's always good to reconsider what Jesus has said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now notice several things in that. Jesus is not saying, if you want to be blessed, do these things. Rather, what Jesus is saying is what happens when we are transformed by the gospel and walk in the newness of life. These are the works of God. All of these things that Jesus mentions in the Beatitudes, these are the works of God. They're gifts from God. And it's all a new order completely. It's all a new system of life. God makes you to be a certain way. He changes your life. When He changes you, you become His. And as His, He bestows specific blessings upon you. So as one who has been adopted into the family of God, as his child, you are a recipient of the riches of God's bounty. Not as an earthly king or queen. But if God has made you to be humble and meek and merciful and pure in heart, these are the gifts of God. These are things that God does within us. It's not the proud and the mighty or the rich who have the last word. Through Jesus, God is about to overthrow all of these. So do you see how different this is from the world's perspective? 
It's not power. It's not prestige. It's not fame or popularity, but it's quite the opposite. It's a complete reversal of the system of the world. And it's so full of hope. It fuels our longings for the full consummation of God's kingdom. The return of Christ. I want this, don't you? It makes us pray with the Apostle John, Jesus, come quickly. Bring all of this to pass. We know it will. It's as good as done. But we long for its completion. And so this is what Mary is speaking of with the coming of the Messiah, with the arrival of Jesus Christ. We begin this new world order, a transformation of all things, a reversal of the world's system. Now let's look specifically at these verses, beginning in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now Luke is using here what's called an anthropomorphism. That is, using human language, human distinctions to describe God. So, if you know your children's catechism, what is God? God is a spirit and he has not a body like man. So, as we understand and read about God's arm or God's hand, we recognize that God does not actually have an arm or a hand. He doesn't have a body, but this is how we understand the work of God. We understand what God is doing as we use human language to explain him. Uh, One writer made notice, and I thought it very brilliant, comparing to an example of what we see in Exodus. He writes, God's great power is represented by his finger, his greater by his hand, and yet his greatest by his arm. In Exodus 8.19, the production of lice was by the finger of God. Exodus 3.20, his other miracles in Egypt were wrought by his hand. In Exodus 15.6, the destruction of Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea by his arm. And so Mary identifies that the Lord is strong and mighty. And that the power of God is displayed. He is showing his strength with his arm. Mary identifies that the Lord does not have a kingdom that consists of those who are proud and haughty. And again, we want to make very clear note about this. Not because we in and of ourselves aren't proud. We are very proud. But it's because of the transformation of the heart that is done by the sovereign work of God. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. What what Mary is saying is that in the course of history, God's mighty power has repeatedly punished these arrogant people. He has dispersed them. He has dethroned them. He has deprived them of their riches. He has driven them away empty. You see it time and time again as you read through the Scriptures. 
Well, who are the proud? Who are these who are proud? They are those who exalt themselves, those who make themselves to be at a place that communicates that they believe they are higher and greater than God himself. Those who perceive to have no need for God because they find themselves to be sufficient. Now, in one sense, all of us can identify with everyone who rejects the gospel as those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. They see no need for Christ. They see no need for God. They pridefully find themselves to be quite all right on their own. All of us, on some level, have been there before. But in another sense, we see Mary referring specifically to those who were like Nebuchadnezzar, for example. Nebuchadnezzar, who openly defied the Lord and called himself the mighty ruler of the land. Remember Nebuchadnezzar standing on top of, on top of where he lived, where he dwelled, where he ruled from, and he looked out on all of the land and he said, look at the great work that I have done. He attributed all success, all power, all of his worth, all of his wealth to his own personal ability, to all of his own worth. What happened? Very instantly, God caused him to lose his mind. God lowered him. God crushed him. God brought him to a place of humility. It's the one whose pride is outrageous and who has an insatiable covetousness. Mary's words allude to the hearts of those at the Tower of Babel. Time and time again making selfish, foolish attempts beyond their own strength, failing to acknowledge the failure of their former endeavors, still climbing the tower to find themselves at superior heights, seeking to reach the level and the height of God. And God in His long-suffering, in His great patience, looks down from heaven in silent mockery, observing all of their splendid, elaborate preparations, And suddenly, without notice, he scatters the entire thing. Brings it to complete and total ruin. It's as if a hidden bomb went off and nobody had a chance to run for cover. But notice, God is not simply concerned with the outward actions of the people. Mary mentions God's scattering of the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God is always concerned with the heart, right? Mentions it hundreds of times in the Bible. Now, as we read something like verse 51, it's important that we ask questions. If God opposes the proud, then what are we called to? We've seen it several times in the last few weeks, and he answers it in verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Humility. The proud and mighty are conquered and the humble are exalted. The Apostle Peter, with this very concept in mind in 1 Peter 5, 6, writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
so that at the proper time he may exalt you. In other words, we best not rise up and think of ourselves equal with God. We better not fight against God. We better not contest God's wisdom. We best be meek and lowly and humble. Whatever God brings into our lives, whatever He brings, we humble ourselves and we accept it from His hand. And we see this so many times throughout the Old Testament. One of my favorite verses, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What does He require? Walking humbly with Him. What does that mean? It means we walk under His mighty hand. The mighty hand of God in the Bible is a symbol of God's covering power, God's controlling power, God's sovereignty. In other words, we recognize that God is in charge and I am not. The mighty hand of God is the hand that is in charge of you. That's what it means. It's the power of God working in the experience of of men. Always accomplishing His sovereign, loving purpose. The mighty hand of God at work in the lives of all men. Sometimes to deliver from trouble. Sometimes to protect the believer through a time of testing and trial. It's a shelter. But it's always the sovereign, mighty hand of God. Whether for deliverance, for testing, for chastening, always under God's hand. So Peter's exhortation ties into what Mary has said. Look, you need to humble yourself. Whether the mighty hand of God is there to deliver you, whether the mighty hand of God is there to protect you through testing that seems so difficult and unbearable, or whether the mighty hand of God is there to chasten you, submit yourself. Humble yourself. Recognize that God is for you. Don't argue with God. Don't debate with God. Humble yourself under His will, under His word, under His power. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew twenty three twelve: Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Proverbs 3.34 tells us, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so the call for us once again is to humility. Well, what does that require? requires much prayer that we are asking God to kill the pride within us. Don't ever think that you will be easily humbled. It takes much prayer. It takes the rejection of praise. Not seeking it. Not, not fishing for praise and compliments. But rather pointing not to myself as the source of anything good and worthy, but rather to God who has gifted us. God who has blessed us. God who has made us to be who we are for His own glory. So it takes a lot of confession of sin because it's not our natural inclination when someone praises us and seeks to exalt us to point to God, is it? 
our natural inclination and desire is to wear that. We don't naturally respond as Mary has with the humble attitude of unbelief that God has gladly delighted in us. So often we respond with an attitude of, well, of course, of course me. We need to repent of such attitudes of heart. And as we grow in grace, as we grow in our knowledge of God, we will more instantly recognize the pride in our own hearts. We'll be able to deal with it more quickly. More than anything, true humility before God requires a confidence in God as the one who loves us. God is the one who made us. God is the one who takes care of us. When I humble myself before God, I recognize that He is God, that He is worthy of my worship, and He is glorified in that. And the fact that God made me and takes care of me is a great reason for me to glorify and worship Him, not oppose Him as the proud, that I not be crushed under His strong arm. Why ought you to glorify God, children? Because He made me and takes care of me. That's why we ought to glorify God. That's humility. We recognize who God is and what God has done. And it humbles us. This is sobering news in many ways, isn't it? We have hearts so prone to cherishing thoughts of our own moral excellence, of our own worthiness. We oftentimes arrogantly imagine that the mercy of God shown toward us in this life is somehow because of our innate superiority. If I take even a moment to consider just how utterly sinful it is, I am blown away that God chose to set His love upon me. That's the good days. The bad days are when I see any worth in myself. I pray that God sanctifies me. That all of us would have more good days that quickly identify our unworthiness of God's grace and it brings us to a place of humility. It brings us to a place of true worship. And so we see Mary looking forward to God's vindication of humble God-fearers, those who have been brought to a place of humility by the work of God. And the proud and mighty oppressors will be brought down, and those of humble estate will be exalted. It's a new order in the kingdom of Christ. It is indeed the meek who will inherit the earth. And so we're called to humble ourselves, to prepare for the total social reversal that comes as a result of the full consummation of the kingdom of Christ. Let's read on, verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. Now there's a correlation here in Mary's song between the spiritual and the material. Both are evident in this verse. 
Remember, Mary seems to be paralleling her song with that of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. We looked at that last week. We read in Hannah's song, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Additionally, Mary's statement, he has filled the hungry with good things, is from Psalm 107 and verse 9. But isn't it often true, not always, but often, that those who are physically, materially in need the most are most likely to sense their spiritual need than those who are rich, those who are satisfied, those who have everything that the world is to offer around them. And when you think of everything you have around you fulfills your supposed needs and longings, it's much more difficult to conclude that you need a Savior that you need more than yourself. This is one of the main reasons that Jesus said it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The rich man perceives that all is well, that he has made his wealth, he has stored it up for his own good, and that nothing outside of him was to credit So dependence upon a Savior and recognizing a need for salvation is for someone else. Don't bother me with that. I have all that I need. Really goes back to the last two verses, doesn't it? Pride. The pride of our hearts. We exult in what we think we have accomplished. The Bible often encourages a spiritual hunger in God's people. There's most certainly this physical reality of Mary's words, but most important, we need to identify what the Bible calls us to in spiritual hunger. I'll give you several examples from the Psalms. Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 8:10. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Psalm 119 and verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. And verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. There's this longing, this want to be filled. This truly is a reversal of the normal order of things, isn't it? The health and the wealth of a man is not determined by his possessions in his home or the size of his storage barns. The health and wealth of a man is rooted in his hunger. This is what it looks like to be a child of God. Remember a bit ago we looked at the Beatitudes. This is what it will be. The announcement of what God is doing. Remember he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
for they shall be satisfied. That's spiritual health. Hungering for the righteousness of Christ. Longing for the righteousness of God to be revealed in our lives. In Revelation chapter 3, God tells the church at Laodicea, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In our culture, it seems to be a a virtue to be independent and self-sufficient, doesn't it? Biblically, such a state of being is an absolute tragedy. It's damning. Remember Jesus with the rich young man? Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Do you hear the reversal of things in Jesus' statement? You, O man, who seems to have anything and everything he wants, you lack something. The something you lack is found in not having what you have. Get rid of it, and then you will be able to come and follow me. R. Kent Hughes said the rich young ruler missed Christ altogether, not just because he would not get rid of things to follow Jesus, but simply because he was not hungry enough. Desire for the material has dulled a budding spiritual appetite, and the rich man was sent away empty. That's right. The man with seemingly everything was sent away empty. Is Jesus condemning the possession of things and stuff? No, of course not. Biblically, the issue is never that you have stuff. The issue is always about stuff having you. Well, let's consider the opposite. Think of those within the Gospels who have hungered for God. Mary, Simeon and Anna, the fishermen, the tax collector, the prostitute with seven devils, many others, and we'll see it all through the Gospel of Luke, desperately hungry people who were sent away eternally full. And Jesus calls us to this, a desperate hunger for more of him. Do you hunger and thirst for more of God? Do you long to know Christ more fully? For the one who is self-sufficient and proud, there is no serious effort to know Christ and to benefit from His grace. Does the pursuit of God in your life seem to be too much like work for you and so you don't have the time to spare? Do you know that your independence, your self-sufficiency is leading you to destruction? Do you know that your lack of hunger for God and being fat on the things of the world is that which may secure your demise in hell? I plead with you this morning, if you are dependent upon yourself and not upon Christ for your salvation, 
If you are convinced that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life because you're a good person and have done good things, please hear me. The Bible makes abundantly clear that none other than God is good in any way whatsoever. You will one day stand before God as your judge and he will reveal to you that the weight of only one of your sins is far greater than any supposed good deed that you have accomplished. God's requirement is not good. God's requirement is perfect. We need a perfect substitute. And God has provided that substitute in Jesus Christ. The perfect righteousness of Christ credited to his people. And so the call to all of us is to repent of our sins and believe in the gospel of Christ. As Christians, we must realize that our spiritual hunger is a blessed state. It works like this. We hunger spiritually and then we are filled spiritually and then we become supremely satisfied. And that satisfaction makes the way for a greater spiritual hunger, a further filling, a further satisfaction. And so it goes on like this, perhaps strange. It's a deeply rewarding paradox. I hunger, I'm filled, I'm satisfied that I might be hungry all the more and filled all the more and satisfied all the more. It continues on and on. And we need to pray together that God would make us all more hungry, that we'd be filled with the good things of God and not sent away empty. Let's look finally at verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In Genesis 12, God announced the Abrahamic covenant. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Mary is undoubtedly here referring to the great promise of God, this Covenant promise given to God's people. But again, notice how Mary states it. It has been fulfilled. Well, is the Abrahamic covenant complete? No, because God continues to save his people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The great nation that God promised is still being formed. But Mary has made clear that God's covenant is a done deal. As Christians, we are spiritual descendants of Abraham through faith. We are, as Gentiles, grafted into the people of Israel. We are descendants of the true Israel. We are the church. It is God's mercy. It is God's faithfulness. It is God's unwavering love for His glory that His people receive the covenant promise to make a great nation, that we will be His possession. The Lord will bring it to completion. It's a sure thing. It's the promise of Deuteronomy 7.9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for thousand generations. God's covenant mercy extends to us forever and ever. And it stands even today. It is an accomplished fact. 
So Mary's song, the Magnificat, it ends with the eternal note of mercy. The substance of God's promise, I will be your God. Securing our salvation, it's full and it's free. It's realized in the hearts of all who by the sovereign grace of God are given faith to embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior. In God's great mercy, He transforms us. He removes the pride from our hearts and He makes us to be humble. He gives us a hunger. He gives us a longing for more of Him that we will be filled. And He fulfills His covenant promise to a thousand generations. Christ will scatter the many Nebuchadnezzars of the world who are proud of their innermost hearts, who see their statues as personal achievements rather than the grace of God. Christ will make His people to understand their need for Him and in doing so will fill all of us with the goodness that He has to offer. Christ reveals the eternal mercy of God that will go on forever and ever as he brings about his covenant promise to fulfillment. And lastly, we see Mary remained with her, with Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Her time with Zechariah and Elizabeth had come to an end. She returned to Nazareth, a four-day journey, except now she's three months pregnant with Jesus, the Savior of the world. She has all of these great things to ponder. We have all of these great things to ponder. Jesus truly has turned the world upside down, hasn't he? We hear the richness of that reversal in the Song of Mary. And as we think on these things, let us all magnify the Lord as Mary has done. As we contemplate the great work of God throughout redemptive history and in our lives... Let us rejoice as Mary. Let us rejoice in God, our Savior, who is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have promised the salvation of your people in Jesus Christ. We rejoice, O Lord, that we are not left to our own good works. Because reflecting on what we perceive to be our own good works only leads us to greater pride and greater self-sufficiency and greater independence. Lord, we pray that you would make us a people of great humility. A people that worship in humility a people that constantly bows our knee to Christ, a people who longs, hungers, thirsts for more and more of Christ. And that as the great reversal of the way of the world continues to take place as the kingdom advances through all the nations of the world, that we would rejoice in what Christ is doing. We rejoice in what you have done, O Lord. Help us, God. Help us to be willing in our lives to reject all else 
that we might follow Christ more fervently. Help us, God, to be humble, to be meek, to be mild, and to delight in the great work that you have done and are doing and will do as you exalt your children and raise us to the heavenly places to sit with Christ on the throne. What a great and glorious reality. Thank you, O God. Help us, O Lord, to heed your word. Help us to pray more fervently for these things in our lives. We trust that you will do them. They are as good as done. For our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.